I'm going to talk to you today about, um, well, a number of things, but the, obviously Bangladesh is at the heart of it, and uh, I'd like to, to thank uh, Matthew for, for inviting me, and, uh, and also just to say that if you do find the, the paper this afternoon interesting, it has just been published in World Development, so you can, you can read a much more detailed version of it if, if you're interested. What I want to talk about today is the problem of the relationship between so-called policymakers and the realities of the people that their policies are supposed to be helping, whose problems their policies are supposed to address. So, so this is really a talk partly about the relationship between policy and implementation and people. And it, it centres on a case which is from Bangladesh, which was a six-year experiment called the Reality Check. And the Reality Check was an attempt to uh, connect policymakers more effectively to, to ordinary people around the country using a sort of light-touch ethnography, an ethnographic method, a sort of participatory ethnographic method that gathered community-level data about how policies in health and education were being experienced. And people went and spent time with people around the country, listened to them, observed them, talked to them, and they went back at regular intervals over a five-year period to the same families. And then they attempted to, to document and communicate this information to policymakers. And um, the paper sort of addresses two broad issues. One is the potentials and pitfalls of using anthropological methodologies to engage with policy. And the other is also the general idea of policy as a kind of relatively unexplored and taken for granted set of processes. And in the paper I use this concept of methodological populism, which is uh, something that when I was working with the anthropologist David Moss a while back, we, we used this as a term to contrast with two other forms of relationship that anthropologists have had with the world of development one being critical constructivist, and the other being the sort of instrumental um, sort of approaches of applied anthropology. Methodological populism, we were using that to refer to the idea of the, you know, the participatory tradition which tries to take the point of view of people in contrast to um, much more measurement type metrics approaches. So um, that's what the paper's about. The data for the paper draws on my own role as an advisor to this project over the six years, over the lifetime of the project. It also draws on the data that that project generated through these annual visits and this light-touch ethnography. And it also draws on my notes as an observer participant engaged in the meetings and the engagements around this project, uh, both with the teams involved, the meetings with policymakers, the training of the people who went out to do this 
work with households. So, um, before I move on to talk about the project, the, um, I want to spend some time talking about uh, the context, the overall context against which the project took place. And um, the first is the culture, actually no, just before I start, the, the, um, I want to say something about the, the context of these big programs. So Bangladesh over the last few decades has undergone massive health and education reform programs, a sector-wide, you know, sector-wide approaches as they became known uh, at the end of the 90s. And these, as you can see, are huge projects. I mean, this is covering you know, the whole country, and these are, you know, public health. I mean, this is a, this is, this is a picture of what's been going on in the field of public health. Um, so massive projects, you know, billions of US dollars, um, you know, large you, uh, consortia of international donors, but also, as you can see, a large amount of money also contributed by the government of Bangladesh. So these are you know, massive reform programs. And the, the idea of the reality check was that one of the very small donors involved in this, which was the Swedish government's feeder, who are a tiny donor, they thought, since these are such massive programs, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to try and you know, find out a little bit more about what's going on on the ground. So that's the overall context. Um, but breaking that down a little bit, I want to contextualise the reality check against four themes. The first is this idea of managerialism, which is a characteristic of international development policy. The second is the tradition of participation. The third is this idea of methodological populism. And the fourth is the nature of the policy process. So I'm going to take each of those in turn. So the I think it's fair to say that the world of international aid, as with many other areas of public policy, is increasingly characterised by an ideology of managerialism. And managerialism is where rational management is posited as the solution to almost all problems and is contrasted with the irrationality of power and politics. And managerialism, as Martin Minogue has pointed out, it gets things, its authority claims is about its ability to get things done, and it partly does this through constructing a false reality. The idea that, very common, that new language is created that reframes problems and ideas, or systems of representation that appear to respond to problems without necessarily actually, actually doing so. Um, so the context of managerialism, and you can see that the OECD aid effectiveness movement, which emerged in the mid-2000s with you know, the Paris aid effectiveness in meeting, uh, was you know, one example of this. And the idea of aid effectiveness is a, is a rationalisation of how aid is delivered and how its impact is measured. So the idea of the reality check was 
sort of taking place as a kind of countercultural example to this managerialist thrust over the last sort of decade and a half. Um, and the second element of this managerialism is the technical emphasis on measurements and numbers. And I don't want anyone to think that I don't think that's important. Of course, it's, it's incredibly important. But the reality check was an attempt to also, alongside that, humanise the um, understanding of how policy worked and the experiences of the people who, if you like, are on the receiving end of those policies. Um, now, the technical emphasis on measurement has been critiqued by lots of people. Uh, Vincent Adams, in her book Metrics, has talked a lot about this in relation to health policy. Uh, John Clammer talks about how it uh, emphasises measurement at the expense of the actual context of everyday life worlds. Um, and there are arguments that it reduces human complexity, the visibility of people, and of course it, the way that it privileges certain types of evidence over others. And as Jennifer Green has said, it you know, has a much stronger emphasis on proof, evidence as proof, and maybe less interest in evidence as inkling. And the reality check was very much about inklings, I think. Um, and the reality check also coincided with the growth of interest in randomised control trials, much more formalised experimental ways of measuring impact, and of course with the, the so-called evidence-based policy movement too. So, so that's, that's one part of the background. Um, and I think, I think from the point of view of the, of the initiators of this project, um, the, the idea for the Swedish government was we're a small donor, we're basically on board with these kinds of processes around rationalising aid and playing our part in these big sector reforms, but we also want to challenge it a little bit and we want to sort of punch above our weight in relation to being a very small donor, but perhaps we can you know, contribute some original and new insights. So the second context in which it all happened was that one can locate the reality check in the so-called alternative participatory development tradition. And for example, many of you probably will have come across the work of Robert Chambers, who's very strongly identified with that kind of participatory tradition, which was about sort of rural um, field work, talking to farmers, talking to households, trying to get a point of view that can be contrasted with that of the experts and the outsiders. And influence of this led eventually to the World Bank's uh, Voices of the Poor, for example, the Voices of the Poor study in 2000. Um, and also to a movement in uh, development policy and practice around immersions, the idea that people who work in development should spend more time actually living in the field or visiting the field and understanding grassroots realities. And a number of agencies have experimented with this immersions idea of sending senior staff to go and live in a village for a few nights in order to actually 
understand, you know, get out of the office and see things differently. And of course, that's one way of trying to bridge the so-called gap between policymakers and people. Um, but there's also another tradition that it connects with, which is the listening study tradition. And listening studies um, have their origins in medical research and listening to patients, listening to their experiences of how they, um, you know, how they experience illness. But also, it's found its way into uh, development. So this uh, study a few years ago by Mary Anderson and others, Time to Listen, was about listening to people on the receiving end of aid. Um, and of course, it also connects with the idea of engaged anthropology, the idea that anthropologists need to go further than just sort of representing uh, people's lives, but also engaging with that information around change. So, um, the reality check, as I said earlier, also links to this idea of methodological populism. And by methodological populism, I mean the anthropological stance of seeking a local point of view. And this can be seen as being countercultural in the sense of challenging technocratic approaches and emphasizing uh, the centrality of people's experiences. And I've taken this term peopling policy from the work of Nielsen, an anthropologist who has looked at subjectivities of those acted upon by policy as being a key part of the picture that isn't, isn't paid enough attention to. Now, populism, of course, is a word that um, you know, carries with it, particularly at the present time, a lot of both, well, a, a lot of negative sort of connotations, but I'm using it here in the sense, or in recognition that it has both emancipatory as well as repressive dimensions. Um, so, in the context of technocratic policy, the idea of using a populist ideology to try to humanise what, what is an increasingly technical process has an emancipatory purpose. And you can see from the, from the elements of the, re, of the reality check idea that there was a whole set of humanistic principles that were created with the reality check idea, which was, which is sort of different from research and is different from kind of monitoring and evaluation um, and is different from the kind of participatory tradition as well, where anyone who's come across the participatory tradition will know that there's a kind of toolkit of different kinds of sort of techniques. There's transect walks and there's things you do with sort of beans and exercises and flip charts and all kinds of things. The reality check was trying to challenge all of that and to be sort of different and to be countercultural <coughs> in relation to all those three different approaches. Um, and it was really one based on humility, on sort of listening. So these kind of principles sort of rather than, so you know, living with rather than visiting, learning rather than finding out, um, you know, having conversations rather than conducting interviews, um, accepting multiple realities, you know, rather than trying to build consensus. So um, it was a very open-ended approach, and it was a very challenging approach. 
Um, but of course, populism also has these limitations. It's easy to romanticize the people, which is a criticism that's often, often addressed to participatory development approaches. You know, participation overlooks the differences in communities, gender, class, ethnicity. Um, but populism also has another quite nasty side, which is to do with its need to create an anti-group, the idea to, uh, to present an opposition between the people and an elite uh, or sort of experts in that you know, populists sort of tend to want to have another out there you know, to contrast with. And, um, and I'll come back to that point because it's important. And then the final sort of part of the context here is the idea of the policy process. And although the reality check was designed to try to understand how policies were affecting people and how people understood and experienced those policies, it quickly became clear that that was only a part of the story because when we talk about policy, what exactly are we talking about? When we talk about policy makers, who are we talking about? We use these terms extremely loosely and it became clear to me, at least, that we need to problematize what we mean by policy. Um, for many social scientists, policy is this world out there that we do our research and we might then want to communicate our findings to this world of policy in some slightly vague way. Um, and it became very clear to me that actually nobody really has the job of policy maker or you know, very few people. I don't know of people who kind of go back to their office and on the door it says, oh, you know, policy maker, that's my job. I mean, what we're really talking about is a wide variety of different kinds of people. There are people in government, there are politicians, there are people in, people in donors, there are people working uh, in frontline services, there are people uh, who are, you know, people who are, um, you know, philanthropists who are, you know, who are sort of contributing or making, you know, making policy in some sense. So the world of policy was, you know, the need to understand the world of policy was a, was a very big sort of add-on to this whole project that wasn't really taken into account. And of course, if one looks at academic literature on policy, it's relatively underdeveloped, I think. And there's a very common view, which is that policy is a linear, rational process. If you look at you know, lots of the public policy textbooks, uh, you find a sort of you know, a linear model of policy in which you know, somebody identifies a problem, and then someone else identifies a bunch of solutions, and then someone chooses one of those solutions, then someone else goes and implements it, and it either works or it doesn't, and then the policy process sort of starts again. But of course, there's other work that says that the world of policy is much messier than that. Uh, you know, Clay and Schaffer uh, 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 characterised it as a chaos of purpose and accidents. And then Kenny is also very critical of the policy-based evidence making, um, you know, idea that that actually, you know, in, you know, in reality, evidence-based policy making is really policy-based evidence making and that you know, decisions and outcomes are in the real world based mainly on power and politics you know, rather than on evidence. 
But hold that thought, because we're going to come back to that as well. So having got some of that out of the way, the reality check experiment needs a bit of explanation. And I want to spend a few minutes just talking in a bit more detail about exactly what that was and how it worked and how it played out in practice. So, as I've said, it was commissioned by the Swedish Embassy. It was part of these large-scale programme reforms with government. Um, and what the project did was it trained teams of local um, social science graduates, mostly anthropologists and sociologists with a master's degree, and some more experienced you know, participation specialists, um, 15 people in total in three teams, to go and live with a selection of households around the country. So in the end, they went to three regions of the country. In each region, they went to three locations, an urban, a rural, a peri-urban. And they spent four or five uh, days and nights with those households. They were very poor households. They were identified, I mean, I can talk about how they were identified, but they were designed to be people who were very much at the bottom of the, you know, the social and economic hierarchy. And the idea was that they would spend time sharing their lives, they would then go back the following year, and they would do that for five years. And over that time, they would build up trust, they would, they would get to know uh, the people, but they would also recognise how various changes in health and education were percolating down or were being experienced, and whether they could see changes in those things. And they made no effort to process this information into findings. They came back each year, and we had a big sort of roundtable discussion and the idea was to try to convey as many different voices, as many different sort of opinions and perspectives as possible in a relatively unmediated form through these annual reality check reports. And the idea then was that these reports would form the basis for meetings with groups of policymakers, groups in government, groups of donors, you know, a reference group drawn from civil society as well. And that each year, issues that came out of this work would be tabled, raised and discussed. And the idea would be that these were, there were only 27 households involved in this around the country, so this is a tiny, you know, a tiny group of households. But the idea was that these were not representative in any kind of statistical sense. They were sort of keyholes into a kind of pulse-taking of what is going on around the country. And that if issues came up that were interesting or potentially disturbing or potentially positive, that these programmes, with their massive evaluation and monitoring and research capabilities, would then be able to bear down and investigate those problems more systematically and, if necessary, take action. But it was, it was a way of having the sort of eyes and ears um, supplementing the existing, you know, very uh, sort of technical program management information systems. So, um, you know, so what happened? Um, 
what happened, I suppose, is you know fairly predictable in some ways. But um, you know, the first thing to say is that what was made visible by the work was the everyday aspects of people's experiences around power, around choice, around implementation that maybe wasn't widely recognised, wasn't getting picked up in the more formal systems. So to give you a few examples of the sorts of things that, that were coming out here, um, primary school dropout, you know, widespread received wisdom about the reasons for primary school dropouts was, you know, very poor households, children need to participate in household labour. That wasn't really what came out of spending time with these households. It was a far more complicated picture. And a big part of that picture was the very low levels of engagement in public primary schools, particularly with boys, that was leading to, there was parental pressure to go to school and there was you know, adjustment made to try and manage that within the household, but there was truanting, there was lack of interest. And, and that was a different picture to the received you know, wisdom in the project in the programmes amongst the experts. Another one was around uh, traditional birth attendance. So uh, lots, of, lots of efforts in these, in these projects to develop a new model of trained in midwives in which um, midwives are, are turned into small business people, you know, given training to, uh, you know, to develop their skills, but what we learnt was traditional midwives far more preferable, much more embedded in communities, involved in a much wider range of tasks than just um, you know, delivering children and also much less vulnerable to the profit motive that a lot of people felt was implied by the trained midwives. So issues like that. Other issues were around the way in which people experience, for example, visits to clinics, visits to hospitals. Lots of issues around the status issues, around how poor people are treated, how people are patronised, how people feel that they're treated very badly. Um, no recourse to the much-touted Citizens' Charter, which all hospitals were being you know, told that they had to display on the walls. So it was a, it was a way into, in a very light-touch ethnographic way, kind of some of the less tangible but incredibly important factors in the workings of these big policy reforms. So, for example, the numbers might show you that a hospital has been built, that it's been populated by X numbers of medical professionals, but not really telling you that, first of all, people were not wanting to go there. Secondly, that no one turns up until, you know, much you know, in the very late on in the day. All of those kinds of things. So overall, it made visible through people's stories and voices an important disjuncture between the functioning of policies on the ground and their representation in the in the documents and the discourses of the programmes. This is what the reality check. Uh, you know, reports look like. So there's, there's you know, reported conversations, there's photographs, you know, school children were given sort of cameras to take pictures of their journey to school and the risks, you know, the risks, you know, that they experienced walking along main roads that was also a disincentive, things like that. 
So, um, as I'm sure you won't also be surprised to learn, the reality check <coughs> data met with mixed responses from policymakers. And by policymakers, I mean donor staff, government officials, program staff. There were some useful changes as a result of reality check data, but I think it's fair to say that these were relatively few and far between and didn't match the expectations of the people who designed the project. There were changes in the assumptions, for example, around the causes of school dropouts and some measures taken to remedy that. Uh, there was there was a need, you know, there was a recognition around working with more motivated local leadership with various initiatives rather than just a blanket sort of rollout of various uh, schemes. There was also a raised profile of non-communicable uh, diseases, which was another issue that was a battleground around what should you know, the health reforms um, you know, be focused on. But I think more common was a resistance and a dismissal um, of the findings. And this was, well, you know, I'll come to why that was, but it was to do with the fact that the nature of the reality check data was a lot, it was at odds to what, at odds with what was expected and recognised and, and appreciated by policymakers. And of course, the methodology itself was also very challenging. Um, it involved, you know, living with people for 24 hours under very difficult, you know, conditions. Uh, that was that was actually a very, a very difficult thing for the teams, you know, to do in some cases because they were living with, you know, some of the poorest people. Some, in some cases, uh, people who were semi-destitute. So it was actually a you know, it was a tough piece of field work, even if it was so short. And of those teams, there were people who dropped out over the five years and had to be replaced and, you know, retrained. It was an unconventional and an unfamiliar type of field work. Um, and then the other challenge was conveying the material, you know, effectively in these reports, because, as you can imagine, even in five days, massive amounts of data are generated and whose stories are going to be privileged in that, whose observations and whose experiences in 27 households with you know, many people in each household, that's an awful lot of stories, an awful lot of information. And it proved very difficult to represent that information in ways that were accessible. And the, and the resistance to providing findings or recommendations, which was at the heart of the principles of this project, was all, also turned out to be a barrier because people were saying, well, you know, where are the findings? So, you know, what was learned from all of this and why does it matter? Um, and in the questions, we can talk, I can talk a little bit more about some of the findings if that's interesting, but in, from the reality check. But I want to contextualise the reality check now in the context of international development policy and the world of public policy more generally. Um, there are three things that I talk about in the paper that come out of all of this. The first is the issue of how certain kinds of knowledge uh, come to be seen or not to be seen by policymakers as evidence. 
Uh, the second is the idea of knowledge spaces and how does evidence you know, get uh, communicated and discussed you know, within policy processes. And the third is that something which I'm calling uh, disruptive temporalities, which I'm arguing the reality check project makes extremely visible and was a, an important problem in the way in which it ran counter to current trends in development policy. So starting with this issue of how particular types of knowledge uh, you know, come to be seen as evidence, I think looking back on this, it was naive to think that one could sort of provide new forms of information in order to bridge the gap between policymakers and people. The idea that you simply put information in front of policymakers and their behaviour changes is, I think, incredibly naive. Um, and of course, it comes back to this idea of the linear rational model of policy, which, while convenient, is wrong. The idea that there is a gap between policy making and implementation that can be bridged is, is a manifestation of that, but it's really surprising how common it is as a way of thinking about these kinds of issues. Instead, what happened is that there is an ideological um, element in the way in which certain forms of knowledge are engaged with or resisted. And what we found was that numbers and measurement is the mainstream currency for policymakers, and providing information that was qualitative, that was story-based, that was anecdotal, that was visual, uh, that was contradictory, was very, very difficult for people to engage with. So the responses from policymakers were along the lines of, you know, we can't really use this, it's not in a form that we recognise, or this is just anecdotes, you know, why should we pay it any attention, um, or, and this was very interesting, we already know this. So when we're saying, look, these schools have, you know, they're there on paper, but they're not actually open, or they're not actually... Uh, you know, performing or this this particular initiative to provide new visual materials in primary schools isn't being used. Very often they'd say, "Yeah, we know that." And um, you know, so then the question was, "Well, you know, what's being done about it?" And then there is a kind of a future-oriented sort of discussion about, "Well, you know, we're going to be doing this or later on in these programs because you can see there's a huge history to these programs and they run and run in five-year units. Um, if we said, look, you know, you're talking about you know, parent-teacher associations and in, in the areas that we're in, we're not seeing any, any parent-teacher associations, then they would say, yeah, well, it's, it, you know, it's early days, we haven't quite got that off the ground yet. Um, so... There was, a, there was a very difficult uh, sort of exchange around um, this type of information as opposed to you know, what policymakers you know, felt most comfortable with. And within the programmes, there were these extremely sophisticated but as yet not working management information systems that were designed to pick up information from 
every part of the country where these reforms you know, were going on. But it was impossible to create any kind of bridge or communication channel between this kind of data and that. Um, now, going back to this idea of populism, there was also a barrier on the side of the reality check teams, which was that after a few years of this difficult relationship and difficult exchange, you know, a kind of populism also started to kick in where the reality check teams would, you know, would take their views and their perspectives from the field and contrast that with the unimaginative policy makers and the technocratic you know, donors and created a kind of an othering, you know, an othering there which also contributed to uh, resistance. So that, um, you know, that issue of how certain kinds of knowledge you know, gets regarded as evidence is incredibly important. The, um, in, the second one is this issue of knowledge spaces and, and the way the reality check was supposed to work was that there would be these created spaces in which uh, there would be an exchange between reality check you know, reports and their writers and different categories of policy maker. And in a sense, what the reality check was about was raising the status of what Rosie McGee calls popular knowledge in relation to official knowledge. So it takes us into these different kinds of categories of knowledge and their different status. And it was an attempt to challenge what James Scott has called the distant abstractions of policymaker models by trying to humanise those abstractions. But the designed policy spaces in which annual reports were communicated rarely worked. These were excessively formalised spaces that the, the policymakers were generally apathetic about the issues raised and that where there was traction and success it tended to be personality driven, it tended to be particular individuals who would say look this is fascinating, this is what we've been looking for, we really want to hear people's voices, we don't have a way of doing that. And then we would think, this is fantastic, this is a chance to build something. And then you'd find that the next year, that person, whether they were in the government, they, they've, you know, they've been moved somewhere else, and so you've got to explain it all again to a new person, or if they were in, in an international donor agency, who you know, with people generally on two-year contracts or, you know, maybe three, there's every chance that those people aren't there anymore. And that leads me to this third point, which is the one about disruptive temporalities. That if you have a sort of a five-year project like this reality check experiment, it sits very uneasily against the much smaller, shorter time frames that are implicit in international development policy worlds. Um, uh, 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 David Soggy has, has talked about, um, he has this phrase, uh, the continuity of discontinuity, which I think is incredibly useful in this, because this is a, this is a very important but I think little understood feature of policy worlds, that sure, the, you know, the health and education programmes are five years long, so you might think, well, the reality check fits quite well with that. The reality is very different because 
uh, you know, both at the level of international individuals in the policy world and also you know, government, uh, actually people are moving around all the time. And when you've got something which is a little unusual like this, every conversation has to begin with quite detailed explanations and discussions and familiarisation because it's, because it's sort of countercultural and because you've got to go through a whole discussion about saying, well, this isn't really based on sampling in the sense that you might understand. So we're not trying to go for representative samples, we're just trying to go for uh, individual households as a way into bigger problems. Um, but on the other hand, you know, the temporalities that were appreciated were at community level, where there was very clear evidence, I think, that the households who were engaged in this you know, study, uh, many of them said, look, after this first year, we didn't expect to see any of these people again. And the fact that they went back was a very, you know, was a very new thing, because most people will, you know, will say, um, look, you know, we see officials from time to time. They only come and see us when they want something, or when they want us to vote, or they want to enlist us into some project. But actually, the idea that over five years you have a continuity of relationships turned out to be an important and a, you know, a highly relevant and an empowering sort of part of the project. So, um, so on the whole, you know, disruptive temporalities, both in the negative sense of policymakers moving around and in the positive sense of creating more lasting ties and bonds at community level. So that leads me very neatly to a conclusion. Um, so I've tried to cover quite a lot of you know, quite a lot of ground here, but the, you know, the problem uh, that policymakers remain remote from the realities the lives of people they're supposed to be addressing <coughs> turns out to be quite a complex uh, problem. There are some geographical aspects to that problem, there are some technical aspects to it, and there are some ideological dimensions. Although I've been very critical of the idea of the sort of bridge the gap approach to policy because I think it's fundamentally wrong. I do think it's a useful metaphor that we, that we have to hold on to because the world of policy is very messy and the, I think the reality check experiment does give some uh, cause to, to support the idea that the generation and application of people-centred information uh, to policy processes can be translated into better evidence for policy making and that there is potential there. Um, I mean, one has, to, you know, one has to draw on a sort of, uh, you know, a cautious optimism to, you know, to take that forward, but I don't think there's any alternative, really. Um, in the paper, I, I briefly refer to metamodernist theory with its idea of guarded hopefulness as a way of trying to make that case and moving beyond some of the negative aspects of the sorts of methodological populism that I've raised. I think it's important because it offers a potentially valuable counter-narrative 
to the technocratic mainstream of development policy, in which tries to return people rather than just numbers and measurement uh, to centre stage. And I think it, it demonstrates the value of a countercultural methodological populist ideology that can express popular grassroots subjectivities in the struggle to humanise policy processes that have become increasingly subject to managerialism. But I think moving beyond that, why I found this to be an interesting case is that it also confirms quite a lot of what we know about the inherent non-linearity and messiness of policy processes. And of course the irony here is that the reality check experiment was sort of compromised itself by the assumptions about linearity and its design. I mean the, the um, you know, the model of the reality check was kind of a sort of a feedback loop, and I know that's more of a sort of systems idea than a linear one, but it's sort of linear as well, I think, in that what was supposed to happen was that community-level experiences and perceptions, you know, were gathered and passed up, and then responses and adjustments and, you know, course corrections in policy, you know, were then enacted that that never really worked in a very convincing way. So partly because of the lack of these knowledge spaces in which um, meaningful information and exchanges could take place, but also partly because the messiness of these programmes, in spite of their vastness and the huge amount of resources they contained, they didn't really have um, you know, coherent instruments uh, that could uh, receive and enact change. But also, I think what makes matters worse in a sense is that although many policymakers paid relatively little attention to the reality check material, we can't necessarily assume either that they would have been more strongly, uh, more strongly influenced by other forms of evidence either at least not in a straightforward way, because I think we learn that the relationship between evidence and policy is a deeply problematic one, and that even evidence that might be more recognisable to policymakers is not necessarily going to influence them. Certain conditions have to be in place. But I think, to end on a, you know, on a positive note, the reality check idea has been picked up and replicated in quite a lot of different contexts around the world. It's a kind of, a little bit in the way that the participation tradition became a kind of movement. There is, there is a very small movement around the reality check idea, and Bangladesh is where it started. And it's been picked up and replicated in a few other places around the world in different ways. It's been used much more, I think, as a, a sort of monitoring and evaluation tool rather than the very pure way in which it was intended in Bangladesh as this bridge between policy and people. But in some ways, I think one can say that in small ways it's become a viable mobilising metaphor, to use the phrase of Janine uh, Waddell, that could have the power to contribute to 
methodological and cultural change within policy worlds. Let me leave it there. Thank you.